everyone. Welcome to another episode of Off the Record uh, with uh, your host, Aram Mokumov. That, that's me. So thanks for tuning in. On this podcast, I'm interviewing well-known CEOs and VCs about their business philosophy, how to raise and manage your money, and psychology of being a founder. This is episode number 19, and I'm joined today by another great venture capitalist who I'm excited to have on our show. Uh, Nasir Kadri is a founder and managing partner at Zeal Capital Partners, an inclusive investment firm. Uh, prior to Zeal, he served as the associate director for AT&T's $400 million Aspire Social Investment Fund. Interesting to note about uh, Nasir is that he is committed to running 51 full marathons in each U.S. state, including D.C., in an effort to raise scholarship funding for first-generation college students. Uh, I think you've done 18 races uh, so far, if I'm not mistaken, so super impressive. Um, congratulations and um, great work on that initiative. Aram, it's great to be with you and, and, and join this podcast early, uh, episode number 19. Amazing. Congratulations on your work. And, um, and, and, and share this and create this space um, to talk all things access to capital, innovation, opportunity, solving painkiller problems. And I'm just really excited to, to have a conversation and, and, and share my story with your, with your audience. Cool. Well, I'm, I'm excited uh, having you on our show as well, and I'm looking forward to it. Um, so I was just mentioning about your, uh, your really impressive commitment to the marathon. So just, you know, let's start there. I mean, you're the first guest on our show who's uh, doing that many marathons. So I got to ask, at what point did you decide to, to do this yourself from a personal perspective? Yeah, you know, running has always been my, my, my worst enemy. This idea that uh, it introduces you to something that is difficult. And when you run something as rigorous as 26.2 miles and you finish, it, it aligns to me, it correlates this idea that you can do anything you put your mind to. And especially as an entrepreneur now and in all the other challenging moments I've had in my life. And so, so Aram, it's probably been about a decade ago when I decided to take on this journey. I was, I was actually, and I give credit to a close friend of mine, uh, Robert Rethkin, who today is the CEO of Compass. And he too um, challenged himself to, 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 to run 50 marathons. But, um, but then it was also this idea that uh, uh, first-generation college students, uh, who I always viewed as the epitome of the American dream, those that were climbing a ladder around the, that no one around has ever climbed, climbed before. And um, I was that kid, and I still am. And I feel uh, a responsibility um, to uplift first-generation college graduates and and share and, and provide uh, you know, philanthropic or you know, raise capital. Um, 100% of the proceeds going to a nonprofit I care deeply about. Um, that's uh, it's called America Needs You, um, national organization that supports, provides mentorship development for first-generation college graduates. Um, and I'm just excited to continue to champion their work. And so, um, and so, yeah, I'm not going to win. I'm scheduled to run two more this year, which will make 20. Uh, wow. Little Rock, Arkansas, and uh, and in, in Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, pending. You know, if everything goes right, just given. That's amazing, but it, it it definitely keeps me laser focused to to to, to challenge myself, and in turn, I, you know that that challenge, challenge I get challenged every day in terms of raising the funds, for for example. But yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah, I mean, um, from one challenge to another, I want to kind of talk about your your, your current capital um, from the you're running. Um, you really took out a very uh, new path here. You know, from what I I could see and tell, you know, really betting early on underrepresented. Uh, you know, investable founders who really deserve a fair shot, 
equally as well as like everybody else who's trying to uh, raise uh, raise venture capital. So like your approach is quite different from traditional VCs that we've been speaking to and have on the show. But, like first thing I want to ask is how did you develop this type of philosophy and an idea? Yeah, I, you know, I've spent the past six years in venture across two funds, um, as you alluded to, uh, most recently AT&T and, and Village Capital as global head of their education, technology, practice and investments, and shortly after leading their US economic opportunity portfolio, investing in FinTech, um, education, future work and health, and then as, as I mentioned, AT&T. But in, within that experience around, you know, really, you know, the, 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 the core of our investment strategy mandate was to um, earmark our traveling dollars and in our investment dollars to um, to recognize these overlooked cities, these overlooked entrepreneurial hotbeds, uh, entrepreneurial ecosystems, that uh, that also reflected when we would do that, it would yield uh, you know, a bit more. Well, it would yield uh, a more diverse pipeline of entrepreneurs. Um, to your point, getting a fair swing of the plate at capital, and what I what I what what I would all, often come out of these conversations with ecosystem leaders in Atlanta, in Nashville, in Austin, in Denver, here in Washington, DC, is that there are investable founders everywhere, not just coming from very few places back from the same people. And if entrepreneurs are truly going to be the change agents of our country, of the globe for that matter, then they have, they have to include everyone, not just the very few. And so our mandate when, when building out zeal, I recognize a missing opportunity where while we often talk about the data around where capital has gone geographically, where capital has gone um, uh, ethnicity and, and, and gender related, we don't talk about or at least share examples of strategies, strategic um, proactive strategies that could potentially level the playing field for more entrepreneurs, particularly underrepresented and women-led entrepreneurs to get a fair swing to play. And so I um, said, let's, let's Let's really think thoughtfully about this, and uh, that led to a market back approach that we coined inclusive investing. Okay, and um, having gone through this process um, in terms of raising a fund and having this type of focus, how would you say you are, you know, you're different, or you 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 look at maybe the analysis of the of the market opportunity, or you know, the investable founders differently than any traditional VCs that are there, and um, apparently um, also. Uh, looking at these type of options uh, from, from, from a funding perspective? That's a great question. I think number one is that um, our inclusive investment strategy is our core differentiator. It's a five-pronged market-back approach that, again, allows us to widen our lens and also best position our companies to outperform. Now, mm -hmm. that five-pronged approach is, begins with our team. We ourselves are diverse fund managers from our core team, our operating partners, our, our advisory board. Um, collectively, we have strong domain expertise and operating experience in investment acumen across the two verticals, which actually is number two, is that we're a sector specific fund. I think you find most journalists, most venture capital funds are journalists. We right. are incredibly bullish around the financial technology, financial wellness, health, and future of work sector. Mm -hmm. Spent the past year before going into market, really analyzing and recognizing the depth of innovation happening um, across these two sectors. And so we are, um, we, we, and then just our, our, our reputation and our ability to, to source um, exceptional companies. And I think that's a third bucket in terms of our differentiation is that we actually have partnered with 24 ESOs, entrepreneurial support organizations around the country, all of which actually are outside of Silicon Valley, New York and Boston. Now we're not ignoring Silicon Valley, New York and Boston. We're actually coupling those deep relationships with ESOs on the ground 
who are supporting these local entrepreneurs, building on top of local, local assets. And then Zeal comes in and builds on top, uh, provides additional capital. But we also mm -hmm. not just provide capital, it's our post-investment value creation. So we have, um, we have two dedicated EIRs um, who have strong domain and operating experience across the future of work and, um, and, and, and financial services industries. We have functional experts um, within our operating partners who, who focuses on sales slash customer discovery, governance, recruiting, and, and, and culture as we think about, as, as we think about the uh, uh, just HR and, and just overall human capital. And then of course, product and technology, you know, helping early stage founders understand how their product should, in terms of being uh, user-friendly to the, to the end user. And so continuously to push our founders thinking, our portfolio companies uh, thinking around those functional areas. And of course, we also have our advisory board who are 11 of the most thoughtful leaders across the, the financial services, future of work, racial equity, and, and impact. And so, because we, we do measure our, um, our, the, the impact that our companies, uh, uh, the impact that our companies have in, in low wealth communities, as well as um, under and underbanked um, consumers. The last thing I would say is that's, that's a huge differentiation for us is that I mentioned that we're market back, but we also have a partnership with Brookings Institution. Brookings Institution today is a Washington DC think tank that has written many white papers and we credit Andre Perry who's on our board of really pushing our thinking around A, policy implications. So when you are investing in potentially highly regulated sectors, it's important that we check our blind spots. We understand that these are policy or regulatory constraints that could potentially um, uh, refrain from our companies from, from scaling at a pace that we'd like. And so it's, it's that type of support that Brookings Institution, I think, take care of DC uh, brings us. And then there's the impact side, understanding the data around income inequality and the, 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 the skills gap that exists, persistent skills gap that exists from, um, from K-12 to post-secondary into the workforce. So, you know, bridging that skills gap between education and employment. And so those are, I guess, a snapshot of, 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 of our model, of our infrastructure, and just our overall value proposition that we offer entrepreneurs um, and, and as we believe is also our core differentiator as well. Oh, that's really interesting. I think it's quite the differentiator that you have. Um, with your experience, I'm just curious with, you know, the knowledge that you have now as being a VC, what would you want to change about traditional VCs if you could? And there's, there's so much, you know, I, I can easily say, of course, um, diversity um, and venture, you know, if we, if we truly are going to continue to be proactive and looking to level the playing field for more investable, underrepresented entrepreneurs getting a fair swing of the plate at yeah. capital, then we have to train the next generation of investors. I'm not sure about you, but I, there was no class in college or high school that taught us about the private markets or uh, venture nope. capital or at all. Right? We had at all, yeah. at all, right, Aram. And so I think, uh, what are those programs? I, I think the good news is that we are beginning to see programs that are offering curriculum um, and oppor internship opportunities for um, you know, aspiring venture capitalists like the HBCU VC or Black VC. There's, um, and then there's, there's, there's other nonprofits like MLT and um, SEO and Twigo Foundation. Um, I'm probably missing a number of others that are, that are specifically uh, uh, building support systems and access and opportunity for uh, aspiring venture capitalists uh, or those who want to have careers in the private markets. And so I think, I think the good news, the, the downside is that we, we, we have a long way to go. It's still 1% you know, of venture capital, of, well, of 70 trillion under management, only 1.3% is managed by women and people of color. I think that's an incredible travesty. And there's so much capital 
left on the table. But um, there's, there's some structural things that, I, that how I think about um, what as, 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 as I'm building out Zeal, for example, um, just overall uh, 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 constraints uh, that exist um, when, when, when limited partners are seeking to invest in GPs, there's this, there's this challenge of, uh, he's a first time VC. And so we don't, there's, we, we rather wait until fund two and beyond or he's a solo GP. And there's a, you know, the seer can never wish it on the seer, but the seer can get hit by a bus tomorrow. And, and that will not be good. It won't be good, but, but how do you mitigate the risk of, of, uh, it's, it's just like a number of like chicken and the egg situations when, when, um, forming partnerships. With, uh, with with limited partners, and uh, for the most part, I, I definitely understand. But I think um, there's just structural. Um, I think there's structural challenges that uh, negate, uh, particularly diverse fund managers like you and I, to uh, uh, really gain that access to uh, capital and, and and the opportunity to to build an institutional fund. Yeah. What would you say has been the most um, interesting or your favorite company? You know, you've publicly invested in. Uh, Aram, you're you're asking me to choose my favorite child. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, it feels like. Well, first of all, I, I don't have any kids. I have every desire to have kids, but I, I felt that was a, that was a, that was a, an easy uh, metaphor. Oh, for sure, I could totally understand how <laughs> those are relatable together. But is there anyone that kind of like really stuck out for you that maybe you had some real passion, you know, towards, or you really aligned with like their vision? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I, I love, so we are still, um, we're still, there's still a, a sense of uproar and a sense of proactiveness as we continue to tackle uh, 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 racial equity and injustice, not only in our country, but globally. And we know that there are, uh, there, there, there has to be structural changes as we think about equity, particularly in our workforce. And so we were, except, we were so excited to meet um, a company called Canaris, led by Mandy Price and Star Carter, um, two African American women headquartered in Dallas, met each other during their time. At, I feel like they, they literally follow each other because they met during their time at UT Austin, and then they went to Harvard Law School together, and then they spent six to eight years in at Will and Gottschall International Law Firm. But through their personal experience, which is a common, um, unfortunately, has been common. Uh, uh, from uh, a, a lot of women in African American and people of color in the workplace, they experience um, bias. They experience, they experience um, uh, is just just unchallenged and a lot of unfair um, uh, um, lack of opportunity to to move up into the workforce and, and just an overall culture that that did not um, allow them to be them full, bring their full selves to work. And so they say, you know what, we're going to change that. And by the way, I I. I the most exciting type, the companies I get most excited about are founders who have experienced a problem head on. They, 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 they say- They live through it. They live through it. They say, you know what, not only can I, and I'm about to solve a painkiller or a solution around this, but there's a market opportunity as well. People will pay for this problem. People will pay for this. And I love that. And, and, and Mandy and Star said that to themselves and they built a people analytics platform dedicated to pushing, pushing corporations, nonprofits, government entities, you name it, to really rethink how they think about uh, workforce inclusion, um, so diversity, equity, inclusion um, across the workforce. And so it's a people analytics platform that um, that's really you know, shaping the, the the culture and thinking around how to um, how, how, how to create a more inclusive workforce. And 
We are, um, it's, it's, a, it's a timely product, as you can imagine, every corporation has DNI at the top of their uh, priority list. So if I was to choose one, uh, nothing against Asusu, nothing against the year one, uh, two exceptional companies led by exceptional, exceptional founders, but in the spirit of where we are today and in this whole conversation around racial injustice and, and racial equity, um, I have to go with um, Mandy Price and Star, um, an incredible platform called Canaries out of Dallas, Texas. Yeah, it's a, it's a great shout out. We'll, we'll, we'll try to tag them in the post as well so they can see this. <laughs> my, my grandmother, Ron, used to always say, you know, she, she always used to encourage me to give shout outs. So um, that's great. We I, do it all the time. It's a great, <laughs> it's a great way to uh, do appreciations all, all around and acknowledge everybody. You mentioned something interesting there about um, you really try to look at companies or founders that come to you who really have experienced this pain point, they live through it, and they navigate it and successfully like maybe found a solution for it. What other criteria uh, do you look for as like what you look in a typical or you know your ideal founder? Yeah, that's a good question. Obviously, it's uh, we look at certain things that um, that get depending on the stage of a company. But probably we we invest in early stage. That's pre seed, seed extension, Series A. Mm -hmm. um, but first and foremost, it is a clear founder market fit. Like, is this the company? Are, are these the founders? that will uh, execute on the strategy, that will take this company to the next stage. In our case, it would be Series A, B, and beyond. Um, what's, the, what's the founder's vision for the company? Uh, the second would be a clear founder, a clear market opportunity. Do we, is there a clear market opportunity? What's the TAM, the total addressable market um, in the marketplace? And so that, that's, that's relevant for us. Of course, you know, the question is, are we the right investment partner? As I alluded to earlier, we, we don't want to um, partner with founders just for the sake of capital or introductions, but truly, can we be a true value partner? Um, not hovering over them, but, you know, be joining the journey early enough to support them in, in multiple areas, just given, again, our domain and operating experience right. across our team. I think that I think another aspect is like for us is it's 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 understanding, um, you know, depending if it's a series A, see it's just a series A, they at that point, they have revenue, they mm -hmm. uh, they have existing clients. And so really getting a sense of how this product has positively impacted that client base um, and their reason why they chose that 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 company or that product, um, that's incredibly relevant to, to us as well. And so, you know, early stage companies is really less quantitative. I mean, at some series A, we can get a little quantity on the revenue and, and just, you know, how that in, in, in the overall competitive landscape. But, um, but for the most part, it's founder market fit, it's market opportunity, it's product. Um, and then it's, and then it's our, um, are we the right? The question is, are we the right investment partner? And with a lot of the VCs that we've spoken to, um, some take different stances in their kind of investment strategy. Uh, you know, I think you brought up some great characteristics and things that you look for in terms of the founders that you work with and whether or not you're the right partner. But um, how do you also like, you know, capital is like capital, like you can get money from anybody these days. What other things um, would you recommend to founders to look for when finding the right, you know, um, investment partner to work with? What other kind of, maybe it's a network, maybe it's like advising services or, you know, how how best do you think founders can get the most out of um, working with venture capitalists outside or aside from the money? So, Aram, you're alluding to a very important, I believe, is a underestimated. We don't talk about this at the dinner table or Zoom dinner tables as much as we should, and as and that is, VCs often always conduct thorough diligence on founders. 
not as often that you know, founders are not conducting thorough diligence on VCs. It should be a two-way street. And right. I think that's another, um, to your earlier question around what I would love to kind of see in terms of the culture dynamics. It's so mm -hmm. one-sided, it's a one-way street. I think uh, mm -hmm. that, that you know, in order for us to really know each other, hence the whole inclusion concept, then I, I, I'd encourage, I encourage founders to really push questions on VCs and ask them around, you know, you know, recognizing their gaps that exist currently in their company, whether it be their their lack of go-to-market strategy, or whether it be, uh, you know, how to uh, how how to source and hire the best engineer product to to build the technology, or you know, just CEO leadership 101. You know, you know, quite often when you when you're an early stage company, the CEO sometimes is not the best as the company grows. You typically uh, not typically, but there's 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 been multiple times where the CEO will be shipped out because the CEO yeah. is meant to 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 run a large corporate company, and so it's it's asking the question, understanding the the, the domain expertise, the, um, the 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 history of the VC. Lots of VCs were current former operators. They were in your shoes at some point. So maybe you want a VC that 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 was a, that was a CEO at some point, and you um, and you can learn from him or her, right? Um, maybe that you recognize the LP, some, maybe some of the LPs that are invested in the, in, in the VC could be, could be potential partners. Like for us, we have a number of FinTech strategic financial services investors in, in our fund. It's a, it is very strategic that, um, it, for us that we invest in fin, early FinTech companies and we are able to introduce those FinTech companies into, uh, to, to these large FinTech and financial services corporations. So I think it's, it's ensuring that entrepreneurs, founders, CEOs are conducting thorough diligence diligence on investors just as much as we're conducting thorough diligence on, on, on them. I love it. That's, it's so true and you're right. It's not talked about enough and I don't think founders have enough confidence, you know, frankly, at times in order to like ask these questions because they might feel like it might hurt their potential opportunity of getting capital. That's so they the don't want to. That's the yeah, culture I know. Of, of, I mean, it's like, that's just how it's being portrayed, and, and unfortunately, that's I don't that, that's not right. I think I think most people would agree. If you, if you truly take a step back and recognize the dynamics between a founder and a VC in the early days, and especially that hungry founder who wants who needs capital to, to build the product and get to that next stage, it's like ah, should, should I ask him or her this or not? And to your point, around you know, if I do, I'm, I'm running the risk of not getting funded. Um, but also want to be bring my full self and share my my, my pain pain points of my company, and I want to make sure they're the right partner. So that's even worse for women and people of color, for sure. Of course, of course. I, I want to ask a, 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 another kind of tangent question around uh, places to get investments. So, you know, we as a company got um, funding early on from different types of alternative sources. I think in general, there is a missing opportunity for founders to explore alternatives to VCs as well. Um, what would you say founders are not doing here that they really should? That's a good question. You know, one of the things I, I tend to start off with is, and I think getting VC capital to some people is sexy. It's like it, it, it put its head it's on a check mark. It's a check yeah. box. Like it's a credibility thing. Oh, you're backed by uh, humility side. You're backed by zeal. So you must be. <laughs> you must be. You must uh, be doing well. <laughs> you must be doing well. You know, but, um, but when you're an early stage company. If you can, and again, I I I, I recognize um, the the broader dynamic of VC uh, when we think about 
think about it in the context of underrepresented entrepreneurs and women, you know, not getting as much found, uh, funding as uh, men to white male, the white, the white male counterparts. But you know, you're to, to the extent that you know you can build out a proof of concept. You can really market map the 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 the, the, the market opportunity that you're tackling. You know, you be customer obsessed and. And 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 compet and, and competitor aware is what um, is the common um, uh, uh, saying uh, these days, and I think that in itself um, is, is incredibly important. But recognizing that you know going right to VC it very early is not um, you know your best your best first like your first point of, of funding. It can be accelerator programs that often provide family and friends type of capital to get your to, to get your, your your company off the ground, and mm -hmm. there can be um, there's non diluted capital PRIs uh, program related investments from private foundations, for example. Mm -hmm. um, there are um, and so, so 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 there's there's multiple there's family office capital there's government capital these days at SBA for example there there's multiple uh, vehicles that from most people's lens is probably not the sexiest of, of, of investment vehicles, but it's it's it also allows you, which I think is incredibly important. To keep your equity stake, so the, the the indirect premise is to keep as much equity into your company as you can. You only seek VC capital when you're ready to take it to to the next level, and mm -hmm. in doing so, just because VC cap, VC we are the lifeblood that really provides serious amounts of injection of capital um, that allows you to just to scale level scale scale to the next level exactly. So um, yeah. that's um, that's important, but. It, Again, I think it's it's a learning process, uh, which is why we have accelerator programs and uh, that focus on helping founders become more investment ready. And um, something you mentioned before, uh, when we had a chance to connect, um, you said that investable companies exist everywhere, uh, but sometimes finding them is a lot of work for VCs. It could be high risk. What do you mean by that? I I want to get get your point of view. No, that's, I'm glad you brought this up. You know, eighty percent of capital. Is in the U.S. has flowed to three places: California, Massachusetts, and New York. Sixty-three percent of VC capital globally flows to those same three cities. That's a travesty. And wow. so that's a, that's, I didn't know that. <laughs> that that's a late, that's, that's a 2016 or 2017 Coffin Foundation entrepreneurship report. And when you look at it from that context, um, you one can assume that oh, the great the best entrepreneurs must exist in those three three, three places. And I fundamentally believe that that's wrong. You think about, I'm a history buff, you think about the, 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 the context of, let's just say the US in general. You know, Detroit was once Silicon Valley, and just like the, the history of innovation. And you know, Detroit was once Silicon Valley, the car was a hot technology, and Silicon Valley was a field of apple orchards. You think about Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh was once Silicon Valley, steel was the hot technology. And now today is actually becoming a um, robotics and machine learning and AI hotbed. You think about uh, Nashville, if you really want to um, invest or, or source incredible healthcare companies, go to Nashville. You want to go and get into education technology, go to Baltimore, go to Denver, come here in Washington, DC. What you're seeing is like this, this, this disperse of sector specific uh, companies that are building on top of local assets. Um, and, and unfortunately, they're, they're, they're constantly getting overlooked by venture capitalists who are who are based in these predominantly uh, tech-driven uh, VC ecosystems like Silicon Valley, New York, and Boston, and, and many of those companies that are 
headquarter in these quote unquote second tier cities are led are, are led by diverse founders are led by women are led by lgbtq plus are led by military veterans are led by founders of all abilities and i my 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 my, my hypothesis is that there has been a lack of especially the past year but even like more than the past there's been a lack of proactiveness to sit to, to earmark traveling dollars to these like flyover cities and, 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 and to some extent, Haram, I think there's been a bit of an arrogance to say, hey, look, if you want my capital, you got to come to me. And so you find that a lot of these founders from these second tier cities are picking up their things from Atlanta to D.C. to Charlotte and to you know, Des Moines, Iowa, to move to Silicon Valley, New York, just to receive capital. Some may they find themselves there for maybe a year, just to, they're just there to, 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 to fundraise and to come back home. Some stay there and it's a it's a missing opportunity for those companies to thrive in their hometown and create jobs. And so I think it's uh, it's a missing opportunity to grow our our, our, our economy uh, more holistically. And, but it, but in, instead, you, you've seen a a uh, this sense of companies that, that are, are are staying in, in, in the valley in New York. But now I think we all are seeing this this evolution of a more evenly distributed distributed workforce. You're seeing this migration. New Yorkers are going out to Miami, uh, Austin. A lot of Silicon Valley folks are going out in Austin, um, which are, I believe are two incredible growing um, entrepreneurial ecosystems. I've been like really hot on them, hot on both of those pre pre pandemic. So it's great to 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 get that uh, to see that momentum. But I think you're also seeing the same in in other in other cities. So I think there's going to be. I'm optimistic that um, there's not this. It's not this thing. It's not this idea that let's build Silicon Valley and Denver. Let's build, uh, you know, Silicon Valley is moving to D.C. or Charlotte. Um, these these cities are are their own, and they're they're going to continue to build on top of local assets, being universities and local corporations, and they're just welcoming this, you know, talent that that uh, that's coming their way from other cities. And again, I, I think that is um, it's, it's exciting. Unfortunate, it, it took uh, a global pandemic for, for for to make it happen to make it happen. But I think uh, I think we're better off this way. Yeah, I mean, it's been a it's been a big shift, remote workforce. Um, and you're right, like, you know, quality of life and cost of living in places like New York and San Francisco was always like stupendous, in my opinion. And so I think with everybody moving, you know, to more where to more place where it's more comfortable to live, you know, that dollar goes a lot further. That talent is like moving now across, you know, the US or even like globally, like I'm, I'm physically uh, based in Barcelona. Um, I moved here to have a better quality of life in many ways, right from from Toronto. So I'm not there during the winter, but you know a lot of people share this type of you know uh, you know a mentality. I think these days, you know, everybody can work from anywhere, and talent is now readily accessible, you know, online, and it's you know it's um it's uh it's it's there. But I wanted to ask you from like an, from a venture perspective, do you care about where the founders are physically? Do you try to because talent you know is everywhere now? But is there anything that you've seen in the last year in terms of like? Some challenges that founders have been coming across, or yeah, uh, I, I, think, I think founders are still trying to figure it out. At, at, you know, as we look to figure out what 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 it means to build a culture um, mm -hmm. in, in, in a digital, you know, Zoom-like fashion. I think we're turning the corner, especially uh, that we're 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 uh, there's vaccine. You know, we're all going to be vaccinated, hopefully, um, by the by, or at least have the opportunity to be vaccinated yeah. at the top of the summer. Um, and so once that once that happens, um, there, I think there's still going to be some form of right. Over the past year, we were actually productive by working from home and, or coming in the office 
maybe once or twice a, a week. I think there's still going to have to be <clears throat> some form of physical interaction to, to just keep that connection. Uh, I think there's nothing better than, um, than, than that human connection. That, that, that saying also correlates to, you know, I love education technology. I think it's a, it's a, it's a component of education that could level the playing field, but teachers will always lead this work. And so it, that, that form of continued human, um, human capital, human capital management is, is, will, will continue. Same goes for the workforce. Um, do I care? I, I think so for, for, for what it's worth, zeal today in terms of our, our fund one is US focus. Um, and so, but as we think about to your earlier question, the, the future of zeal, I absolutely uh, uh, see a see future funds where we are global and we actually don't care where where where, where you live and it's more about the opportunity the, the company that you're that you're building and and, yeah. and, and and whether or not we're the right investment partner but um, but very much excited as, as someone who's just done a lot of research and and, and deep diving around the future of work, creating more of an inclusive work for, uh, work workforce thinking about you know providing the right resources to upskill, reskill workers, it's um, it's exciting. And, and I, again, unfortunately, it's a global pandemic for us to have this shift. But, um, I, but I do think culture, how we think about culture um, uh, will be redefined, um, especially after uh, most of us in the world receive vac vaccines. It's, it's amazing how human nature needs a pandemic or the precipice of like some sort of climate change, you know, disaster to realize, oh, we should maybe, you know, think differently. Um, my last question uh, is something I always love asking people at the end is with all your knowledge and everything that you know now, what would you say to your 30 year old self in terms of advice? Yeah. Well, first of all, um, I'm, uh, I'm always trying, I'm always learning. And while I've learned so much, um, you know, I always feel like I'm flying this thing, flying, building this company, building my life. Um, as I as I fly it, and uh, so this idea of always learning and having amazing mentors um, around you, this idea that I never want to make a decision by myself, and that type of perspective and um, and the encouragement um, around me uh, continues to give me optimism that. Um, this was this was the great this was a great idea to to build a fund a best in class institutional fund that's investing in exceptional diverse management teams that's rethinking the building blocks of wealth from education to employment to financial wellness at thirty which was only six years ago by the way so not that long <laughs> um, you know I I would have I would have I would have pushed myself to travel more um, and. I was I was having this conversation with my sister and um, and my fam my, my family uh, even a couple a couple weeks ago at dinner table uh, Zoom dinner dinner table and we were um, you know my I think when, when, when the more you travel uh, the less ignorant you are not to say I was I'm ignorant I was ignorant uh, but I so true. I, I I did have I didn't have perspective on certain topics that um, that that I was a part of that that in, in my in my role at that point it was at Village Capital in my role when I, when I was at here I don't own the school board so philanthropic uh, board just volunteer roles like being on the school board here um, and just 
when you have a perspective from other countries in terms of how they support entrepreneurs, how they think about education reform, how they think about the digital divide, how they think about racial equity, um, it's it's it, it really strengthens your perspective. It allows you to share with other people who un, unfortunately probably would not have didn't have that experience you had, and so mm -hmm. or probably wouldn't have thought about it from that perspective, given their lack, and so. At 30, I was in their shoes, and I and I and I, and I encourage entrepreneurs and, and students um, to to travel um, when it's safe and and and, and, and read often um, to to really broaden your perspective, so you can uh, you know be able to push and ask questions that are relevant to whatever the conversation may be. And I think you know find that find that that outlet to to continue continuously to be to get smarter and doing so. Uh, you do that with uh, you. You surround yourself with amazing mentors as well. So, awesome. That's what I would say. No, that, that's great. That's a lot of great learning there for people to take away. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nasir, for uh, being on our show today. Uh, for everyone listening, this was another off the record episode. Um, it's a podcast with the goal to build a community of founders and VCs around it, so we could help make businesses better together. So, awesome having you. Thank you so much for your time today. Around my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.